fake, fake, fakety fake. Hi, I'm Jody. I'm Caitlin. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News, and then talk about how China is stealing everyone's masks with my friend Caitlin. How are you, Caitlin? <laughs> Doing well, as well as you could possibly be in quarantine. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. As well as one could possibly be. Yeah. I mean, today I woke up at 12 o'clock. Nice. Yeah, that's the latest I've slept in in a long, 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 long time. I think ever, actually. I don't think I've ever slept <laughs> in to that time. <laughs> Me and my boyfriend decided to lay in the bed for at least till 3 o'clock. Solid. We then got up and did laundry. And um, we decided to watch the show Nail It. Nail It? Nail It. Nailed It. Nailed It. Okay. Yeah. It's a baking show. And do people like when they like bake like the, the best creme brulee and they go, nailed it. No, 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 oh. no, no. <laughs> yeah, people who don't know how to bake, but they have to bake professional cakes. Oh, okay. And they're always horrible. And it's really funny. Anyways. And uh, that's how great and productive my day is. <laughs> Why did I do this? Because I fucking felt like it. Like... Yeah, I mean, my quarantine experience is a little less fun. <laughs> you think that's fun? I feel like it's. Sh- I feel like shit. Like, <laughs> feel fun. Well, I know. I think that's because part of you is you're. You're like you like to be a productive person. So like yeah. when you have an unproductive day, it's like, and uh, you know, I don't mind an unproductive day here and there. But like now in quarantine time, it's just like kids twenty four seven and. I have no time to do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not... And then by the end of the day, my brain feels like mush. So that's uh, that's how I've been doing. Yeah, I've just turned into my couch. Yeah. <laughs> that's what's happened. I miss the outside. I, that's the thing is like, I don't live in a house. I don't have a backyard or anything to go around. I'm in an apartment. So it literally feels like I'm fucking trapped. The thing that sucks too is for whatever reason, we've also had like the coldest April in history in this province. <laughs> oh, I know, it sucks. And so even with the kids, like I can't go outside because my, my littlest one just f- turns into a popsicle in, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in a couple minutes. And then, uh, but we've allowed uh, the bigger one to to rummage around outside and have some good time. So yeah, I'm hoping the weather gets better and it'll be a nice thing to just be like, run around in the backyard and collect dirt and stuff. And I will just sit down and zone out and it'll be really nice. Yeah. Okay. Now, before we get started, I did want to say that my, my heart goes out to the people of Nova Scotia for what happened there recently. Yeah. And I can't imagine what the friends and families of the victims are going through, considering that this tragedy just uh, occurred during a global pandemic. And mourning in a time of social distancing is, uh, I mean, probably strange and weird and is going to have an impact on the emotional well-being of that community. So, Yeah, well, they're even saying they can't even physically have a funeral, which makes it a lot more difficult while grieving. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Yeah. But also uh, toxic toxic masculine behavior is something that comes up frequently on the show. And that isn't to say that there is a direct relationship between Ezra's podcast and what occurred in Nova Scotia. But it definitely underscores a systemic problem, especially considering most mass killings like the one that happened in Nova Scotia involve men and usually white men. This one in particular likely involved a domestic dispute as well with an ex-partner. And so... uh, we need to fix our society is basically what I want to say to that. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. So they, they've they announced that it had something to do with a partner. 
I couldn't find any information yet confirming exactly what happened, but from what I understand is either the first victim or the first house that he burned was his ex-partner and her new partner's house. Okay. Uh, So that's sort of what started it off, according to a few reports that I read, but I don't know if anyone's come out conclusively saying that's what's happened. Okay. Yeah. Because I guess when I was, I haven't read about that. Um, And maybe just because I haven't came across it or haven't kept updated. A lot of what the articles state is that the first incident might have been this domestic issue. And then beyond that, it was just random. Yeah. Just tragic all around. Yeah. It's very upsetting. I think another thing, though, too, that's been upsetting me is like how a lot of people have been framing it like he he just, you know, snapped. He just got out of control. It's a tragedy that this happened to him as if he he's innocent. <laughs> like, uh, I think there was like um, there's an article where a lot of people were criticizing the title of it. I can't remember exactly, but it was very much like, you know. Nova Scotian man has mental breakdown, right? Rather than like actually just saying like that he went around killing some a bunch of people and went on a killing spree. I remember there was a Globe and Mail tweet that said something like he had a passion for police. Yes, yeah. And it's like, why, why even word it that way? Like you didn't have a single editor to like think about how that sounded. Yeah, no, it's bad. We'll learn more about it in the coming days it's just the fact that this always happens to be men and usually white men that are committing these acts of violence and uh that data point itself should be telling us something about men in our society yeah yeah 100 percent. and now that that uh depressing information is out of the way (laughs) the imperial roundup hello my rebels hello my rebels I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. We begin with April 1st, and, and I just want to say, too, we've been severely delayed. <laughs> my, my life during quarantine has made editing and researching the podcast very difficult, but we're going to try to do some catch-up in the recent time to, to catch up to modern day, but we're going all the way back to April 1st, so... Enjoy the ride, I guess. <laughs> and the the interesting thing about this episode, too, is uh, April 1st itself, we recorded the last time we got together, but I feel like I missed some key details, and I also discovered new details, and it just made me go, I wanted to do it all over again with uh, Caitlin. So, so the thing is, Caitlin's already heard some of this, but it's still going to be fresh as well. So Yeah, I haven't heard this in a while. So yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, the other aspect of it is you probably don't even remember what we talked about. No, not at all. So the episode is a weird episode because it starts off with him sort of going into conspiracy mode about what happened with the virus in Wuhan. And the thing is, there's not a ton of like new information, but at the time... Ezra, I'm guessing Ezra picked up on this story because a lot of right-wing news sources started carrying this article about the extent to which bats were at the wet market Mm -hmm. in Wuhan. Okay. And this was promoted mainly by people like Tucker Carlson on Fox News. And so Ezra even references Tucker Carlson in the piece. And on top of the fact that there were no bats being sold at this Wuhan market, the the added information from a lot of these people too was this idea that bats that carry coronaviruses – were being investigated at the like research lab that exists in Wuhan. Okay. Yeah. Now these two inf- 
bits of information are like quasi accurate, but then like what they like draw from it is where like the bullshit seeps in. <laughs> now the claim about the bat specifically not being sold at the wet market, uh, that claim comes from a paper by scientists at South China University. So they basically went into the wet market and didn't find any bats. And they then released this paper. Since then, this paper has been removed, and I don't quite understand why it's been removed. And so it's difficult to find. And that has led to like further speculation about, like, this is a Chinese cover-up. They removed the paper. Maybe it is a Chinese cover-up, but like I have no information there. But the paper was hard to find. Okay. <laughs> now, part of the thing is what this paper showed was that they guess they went in and they investigated and found that no people were like selling the bats. So what Tucker Carlson and Ezra do is they go, well, they weren't selling the bats. They were investigating the bats at the lab. Therefore, it must be either a leak or that the lab was creating a bioweapon. And, <laughs> <laughs> and the difficult because when we initially did this story, I was leaning in on the idea that Ezra was claiming here that it was a bioweapon. But on subsequent listens... I think he was leaning more towards the idea that it was some kind of leak. So I, I wanted to go through a, a bit more of whether or not that's an actual possibility. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess be, before we get into to that part, because there's the, the additional stuff about like the virus being engineered and whether or not it's a bioweapon. And that claim specifically, and even Tucker brings it up, and it's not even in any of the studies that they show. Like, this is just some additional thing that they throw on top of this. It, like, if you actually study viruses, there's usually, if it's going to be man-made, you need some sort of, like, scaffolding for, for humans to do their work on it. Like, the technology isn't there yet to make a virus that is completely devoid of any markers of human interference. Okay. So it's like, if you look at any virus, you could tell whether or not it was human made or developed in nature. And so scientists looking at this virus can tell that it has every indication that this is something that just evolved naturally. There's no evidence that it has any of the pieces necessary in order to be an engineered human artifact. Hmm. Okay. I know. I had no idea. Yeah. And my my explanation here is very vague because I don't fully understand the science, but you can go read the science if you're an engineer or someone with more expertise in yeah. the subject. But it seems like all the experts are in agreement that if you were to engineer this thing, you would be able to, other people would be able to detect that it was engineered. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know you could do that. It also isn't clear why China would make a buy a weapon like this <laughs> i can see from their perspective like china's this like rising economy this rising giant in technology and you know like they they want world domination they're so different from us and they're kind of takeover kind of thing so then i think you kind of go to what's the next step in taking over okay some sort of war right like steps towards war and so they're like they're using biological warfare right to like start this start this thing to wipe out the americans but it's fucking stupid <laughs> because it hit them so hard so why would you do that why would you overcapacitate your hospitals make your whole entire population sick like why what what's the point no exactly and if it was just a matter of like building this kind of like strength as in like look at us big superpower we'll we're building these viruses why the coronavirus 
because every <laughs> every bio warfare person that I can read online talks about the fact that if you're going to do it, why not design something like Ebola? Like if your end goal is to kill the most amount of people possible, choosing coronavirus is not the direction you want to go. Or there's other ways where you can just like poison crops or like, you know, it, it's specifically attacking a certain population rather than a virus you can't control that can come back and kill your own people. <laughs> Thing. like they got hit so hard and they were like leading for the longest time in most cases in death so it's like i don't understand what the logic is there well that's why like these two ideas that either it leaked or it's a bioweapon can also be combined in that maybe it, is, well, it was a bioweapon but it leaked like they didn't intend to drop it on their own people but even if they dropped it in america like it would still spread back to china yeah that's so stupid just like it spread around the world now the only other way i can see this working is not a right leaning argument the only way i could see this being like this like biologically engineered weapon is if they you know like the v for vendetta they made the weapon so they can make like the cure i might be confusing the movie but um, <laughs> no i'm pretty sure it's v for vendetta where they like experiment on people to find a cure for a disease that the government created so then people would buy the vaccine for it but then that's like global capitalist corruption that had nothing to actually <laughs> do with like you know this like right-leaning argument that china is like these evil communists now the question about whether or not this virus escaped from a lab is something that is a bit more difficult to address so the idea here is that because this wuhan lab that they were bringing bats there to study various coronaviruses maybe they brought the bat with the coronavirus and then somehow it escaped the lab okay part of me was thinking this was the the move that Ezra was endorsing because Ezra keeps on talking about this virus being China's Chernobyl. This is some kind of signifier of the coming collapse of the communist regime, right? That's why he always has Gordon Chang on who wrote the book, The Coming Collapse of China, because Ezra thinks that this is the one thing that's going to cause the collapse of the, the communist regime. Interesting. And so the idea is just like in Chernobyl, where it was just a bunch, like a series of errors within people working in the Chinese government that, and like they ignored it, they tried to cover it up and everything yeah. went to hell, right? So that's like his imagining of what occurred in Wuhan at this laboratory. If the market had no bats, that doesn't mean that the only source of the virus remaining is the labs in Wuhan. It is possible that the human was infected and then brought the virus with them to the Wuhan market, where it then evolved human-to-human -human transmission, or that the virus had transferred into some other animal, like a pangolin, and then transferred into humans, and then evolved human-to-human -human transmission. Like, there's various pathways that this could have taken. So you don't need to have the virus, like, technically, like, originate in the market, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. It's just that the cases all seem to surround the market in some way. Like that's when they started. That's what, yeah. Or when that's when it first came in contact with a person who started spreading it to other people. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, that doesn't rule out that the virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan. But the scientific consensus seems to be that that would be very unlikely. And of course, unlikely is not impossible. And so the anti-China right wing had, uh, has found their best case argument, even if... In reality, there is so far zero evidence to support it. No evidence that this coronavirus was ever in the lab. No evidence that it somehow transferred to a researcher who then accidentally leaked into the public or something like that. Mm -hmm. And also no evidence that protocols at this lab 
were not being followed, such that this is specifically indicative of a kind of Chinese-specific problem, as opposed to a general risk that all infectious disease research comes with. Because it's possible at any lab around the world that's even not in China could have a leak like this. It's possible. Not likely, but possible. So for his whole Chernobyl theory, you would still need to have some sort of argument like the protocols at this lab were being so neglected that this thing escaped. But like all the researchers in other countries that have visited this lab and worked with them, say there's this is like a top tier laboratory that's very secure and leaks like this just don't happen. Yeah. Now, of course, scientists, they couch it in terms of unlikely because nothing is like 100% impossible ever in science. (laughs) Now, Ezra and Tucker both try to argue that the reason we can't talk about this is because the leftist infectious disease experts are too caught up in their PC nonsense and just don't want to be seen as racist. A post on the National Institutes of Health website, written by NIH Director Francis Collins himself, dismisses any such speculation as, quote, outrageous. Keep in mind, NIH is supposed to be keeping you safe from diseases like this one, not running political interference for hostile foreign governments. This is how they're spending their time as Americans die in the middle of a global pandemic. Okay, yeah. And so out of curiosity, I just went to the NIH website to see if this is... (laughs) the case. And of course, there's not a single thing on the NIH website that has anything to do with China or Chinese racism or any of that nonsense. Yeah, of course not. The only thing that I could find is that Francis Collins has a blog. And on that blog, one of the uh, articles that he wrote was basically, here's the evidence of why this virus was not engineered. And there's like a paragraph in it where he's like, and all these conspiracy theories to the contrary are being racist if they are adamant in their denial of the science, right? Like if you look at the science and still believe that it's a engineered bioweapon, you're clearly doing it for racist reasons, is his argument. I, yeah, that makes sense to me, yeah. And I completely agree with Francis Collins. <laughs> so as always, the information about this virus is continuing to come in. No one yet has the full picture. And so it is worth reminding that our understanding here could change. I would also like to add that if China is responsible for some aspect in how they handle this, we will address it on this show. But Ezra's incessant fear-mongering is not responsible uh, journalism. It is simply an attempt to propagandize this pandemic against the dreaded Chinese communist. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. The interview segment of this episode on April 1st was super weird. The person that he has on is Dr. Lyron Chu. And we joked because you had said that you wanted a doctor on the show. And I was like, you're going to regret it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and this is partly why. So the main reason Ezra has her on as a guest is because she's an immigrant from Taiwan having graduated with a bachelor's in nursing from National Taiwan University in the early 80s. She has since earned a PhD in nursing from the University of Texas in 1996 and taught nursing at the University of British Columbia from 1999 until 2007. Ezra has her on to discuss Taiwan's medical response to COVID-19, specifically whether masks are effective, and describes Dr. Chu as an expert in Taiwanese health. Ezra also describes her as a practicing nurse although I cannot find evidence that that is in fact the case. Okay. In reality, since 2006, Dr. Chu began her own research institute called the Canadian Research Institute of Spirituality and Healing, or CRISH. 
and they seem to mostly promote incorporating spiritual practices with modern healthcare, with their current byline advocating for integrative medicine. And just for those who don't know, integrative medicine is a buzzword, basically, that evolved out of the complementary and alternative medicine movements. So if you go back into Krish's history, they began as huge CAM promoters and then evolved into integrative medicine people, which is, yeah. <laughs> which is a typical pattern. And the reason why you have all these euphemisms is because originally it was just called alternative medicine. But like that doesn't satisfy these people because alternative sounds like it's not actually medicine. It's this okay. other thing. And so you call it complementary medicine. Because it's like you take it with like your actual medicine. It's to complement it. But then even then, it's still like a side thing, right? So then they changed it to integrative medicine. So now, <laughs> so now you just integrate the nonsense into the actual medicine fully and completely so you can't tell the two apart. Mm, nice. And the obvious thing here is uh, the reason why like alternative, complementary, and integ integrative practices are not evidence-based is because they wouldn't be alternative if they had evidence. They would just be medicine. Yeah. Most of what Krish promotes is relatively harmless, like getting cancer patients to meditate to improve their well-being, which is like fine, whatever. But Krish also promotes traditional Chinese medicine, which includes things like acupuncture, herbal medicine, and cupping. And they also promote other ineffective, non-evidence-based treatments, including the most bizarre thing they promote, which is energy psychology. Uh, have you heard of energy psychology? I have a feeling it's when you put your hand very close to the body. <laughs> you are right. You got it exactly right. You got it exactly right. I knew it. And you you feel the person's like aura and presence. They want like, so now it's not aura or presence. They're called biofields. <sighs> <laughs> oh no! Biofields aren't real. None of this is real. And I was just like amazed when I found out that they promoted energy psychology. And this is the person that Ezra has on his show to talk about medical stuff. And and here's the thing: is Ezra, of course, mentions none of this. It isn't directly relevant to the topic Ezra has her on to discuss. It is weird that when Ezra is listing her credentials, he conveniently leaves out her main line of work that she's been doing for the past 14 years. He only lists the stuff that she did earlier that is a little bit more legitimate, like teaching nursing at the University of British Columbia. Yeah, of course. He also fails to mention that she was a candidate for the BC NDP party during the 2017 provincial election. Yeah. And this also isn't totally relevant, except for the fact that during the interview, Ezra starts going off on Trudeau and then basically makes some flippant comment like... Trudeau just gave $50 million to, to Greece for the virus. And, you know, that amount of money could have built a mask factory in every city. It just drives me crazy to hear this. Listen, that's I know that you, that politics is not your business. You're You're a nurse, you're a PhD. And it's like... Well, no, she was a politician. <laughs> like, that's a weird thing to say. Hmm. Chu doesn't say anything that is necessarily wrong in this segment. And and she does like avoid Ezra's questions, especially regarding the effectiveness of masks. Instead, every time sort of Ezra brings it up, she moves it to this idea about Taiwan's ability to produce masks in rapid time. Yeah. Credit where credit's due, I guess, that she didn't like bite the bullshit necessarily in terms of this. 
I am left wondering, however, how these two interesting characters ended up coming into contact with each other. Maybe he was like, I need an expert on my show. And then maybe Ezra believes in alternative medicine and was like, this is good. (laughs) Did he like do a call out somewhere? Like, I'm just, I'm so curious how they got involved. But it's like you have a far right fascist, reform party insider and attempted conservative candidate who thinks China is evil and an energy healing university educated nurse who was once a candidate for the BC NDP. Maybe he goes to her for energy psychology. Is that what you called? <laughs> yes. Yeah. To get his biofields fixed. I don't know. I don't know what you do if your biofields, but. Ezra likes to get his biofields tickled. I get it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Anyways, that was April 1st, and we can move on to April 2nd. Ezra begins by reflecting that at this point, only, so on April 2nd, only 142 Canadians had died. Okay. And then he also raises that unemployment is approaching Great Depression levels. And he doesn't say it outright, but he's kind of implying that the deaths are pretty low, and the Great Depression thing is bad. Therefore, pro- we should probably open up for business, right? And get back mm-hmm. to normal. Mm-hmm. Now, he doesn't make that jump yet, but it's definitely implied, and it's pretty much implied throughout the rest of this episode. Yeah. The argument of a lot of the far right is that somehow the eco- economic tragedy will cause more death than the pandemic, and it has never been made clear why that is the case. Okay. I think the The best answer you get from Ezra here is that it'll create like despair and people will commit suicide or that they won't be able to like afford necessities like food. And so therefore people need to work. Okay. Yeah. Ezra then transitions to issues involving personal liberties. So it's like you have those problems, but then you also have these personal liberty problems. And so he plays these clips, uh, especially from the UK of UK police being particularly aggressive in forcing social distancing among people. And Ezra also complains about the use of drones in the UK. Ezra then claims that no country has masks because China stole them. So now we've got, so, (laughs) right? You got, we should open up for business because nothing's wrong. Then you got, (laughs) you got uh, our civil liberties are being taken away. And also China's stealing all our masks. Like, I, this episode is super random. Okay. But he complains about China stealing everyone's masks. And as evidence for this, he plays a brief clip from Australia. Now, I don't know what this clip is from, and I kind of ignored it. It seems very xenophobic to me, but I'll just, like, put that to the side. But when I looked into this, so what happened in Australia was not a theft by the Chinese, but that a company called Rissland, which is a property developer that's based out of China, that also has property in Australia and jobs in Australia. The people in Australia that work for this company ended up sending masks to Wuhan all the way back in late January, early February, when Wuhan was at the height of their own pandemic. Mm -hmm. So the accusation being made by Ezra and other far-right commentators in Australia is that Rislin sent those masks to the Chinese communist government because they were forced to because communism. Which is crazy because now they're sent China sending PPE all over the globe now to different people. Like even even today, they had like several cargo jets come over filled with masks and other PPE for Canada. And it's not just for Canada. They've been sending over equipment for a lot of different countries. So that doesn't make sense. How are they stealing all of our masks? They're not. I mean, and at this so. time, like it was it was clearly like Wuhan needed them. 
Yeah. And here's the like the really depressing part that you're kind of like alluding to is like, yes, China is giving back. But right now in Australia, apparently it's become more difficult. So the same company is now trying to bring masks into Australia. And they're yeah. finding that there's roadblocks and stuff because of all the travel blocking and blocks to imports and stuff like this mm-hmm. that Australia has locked down. So now bringing the masks back into Australia has become harder, even though the same company that's being treated racistly essentially by the media in australia is trying to do the right thing and are being denied the ability to do it or at least in a timely manner yeah that's crazy it's not to mention as well like this has led to an increase of violence towards asians uh in australia but also like around the world and some of the information that i found there was like for example in melbourne i think a a temple had go back to china you yellow people and stuff like this like spray painted on their uh temple it's like bad out there for uh, Asian Australians, Asian Americans, Asian Canadians right now. Yeah. No, I've definitely heard cases where people are even just doing small microaggressions towards people of Asian descent, like, you know, like covering their faces or their mouths when they're nearby or trying to get distance themselves really far away from them, but not doing it to other people, right? And it's going to get worse, and we're going to cover a bit of that in a couple of seconds, because Ezra makes some stupid claims himself. (laughs) Right. But back in the the timeline of this episode, uh, Ezra goes back to fear-mongering about Canada, just letting in Chinese people. And again, I think he's done this every single episode since this pandemic broke, which is he talks about all the planes that are still entering the country. Yeah. He also goes on again about Trudeau's just relaxing at home not doing anything, and then says, you know who isn't lounging at home? Putin. Trudeau's still doing that self-hiding thing. For three weeks, he's been lounging around at home. Is any other world leader doing that? Here's Vladimir Putin. He's not lounging around at home. Oh, I thought he was going to say Trump. Putin. He doesn't follow it up with anything. He doesn't add any caveat. Putin. And then he moves on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> that was the first moment of praise of Putin I've heard on the show so far, so there's that. I don't <laughs> I, I don't yeah, I don't get it. It's very weird, but there it was. Like content is getting very dry for him, so he's gotta just like throw some stuff out there. Ezra then says he's critical of any model that is trying to predict what the death toll will look like. So he goes through all this thing, and now he's trying to say, fuck science. <laughs> we know from global warming models uh, that they're, they're only as good as the person building them. They all do exactly what the people who design them want them to say. So in global warming, they all predict doom and gloom. None of the climate models ever actually come true. Are we making the same mistake with the pandemic models? Could be. Oh, it's so problematic. Very problematic. Especially if it's going to lead to people dying. I mean, that's what climate scientists do, but people just don't believe them because they'd rather not have to change things about their lives. They'd rather just deny it and fight against it existing rather than actually realizing that your way of being, your way of life needs to dramatically change if you want to continue to exist. He's so convinced his audience and himself on the point that global warming is just some sort of conspiracy theory. Yeah. That's all he has to say, and his audience gets it. Like, he doesn't have to defend the proposition anymore. Isn't that for, like, everyone on the right's point? Like, what evidence do they really present when they have an argument? Yeah, well, I mean, they try to present some evidence sometimes. 
<sighs> but like in this case, it's just like, well, clearly scientists are wrong about climate change. So why are they right about COVID-19 numbers? Could you just imagine you're like, I don't know, a construction worker and then someone just goes, you didn't really build a house. <laughs> Not really having to build a house. Yeah. You didn't actually build a house. You're wrong. And then you're looking at the fucking house and you're still saying to that construction worker, you're wrong. You didn't build a house. You don't know yeah. what you're doing. That's what he does. Or just stands by and com- completely critiques how they're like studying the wall or something. Yeah, as if he knows. It's like, no, I think studs need to have three feet apart, not two. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, it's just like that. Like, it's like you're criticizing something that you have no idea about. Yeah. I hate when people do that. And like academics get it all the time, which is the worst. Yeah, no, it's, it's academics do get it, but it's like other other fields get it as well. But it's just this idea that you're an expert. There's something to be intimidated, not trusted by the even the term expert is like scary for some reason for people what are you some ivory tower elitist yeah (laughs) with your knowledge yeah or it's almost like they feel excluded maybe like as if i'm not a part of this group this group has a certain social status or signals some sort of i don't know like uh that's definitely part of it. Higher link in the the intelligence. Hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, as, as well. Or, or just like their way of life or knowing is better. So instead of understanding the person, understanding that maybe we have a flawed system that maybe prioritizes certain groups of people and values certain people more than others, and maybe that's not correct. It's like this like conflict. Like we just gotta oppose that everything you say is is wrong. Or I just love it when they even go, yeah. They know how to read a book, but I got common sense. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? And the thing is, like, I want to, I want to agree with them somewhat. Like, I hate this kind of like, because I've met them. You know, your your smug academics that just think they're so full yeah. of shit. And so, like, yeah. these stereotypes have some like element of truth in it. But it's like I still trust expertise, even though not everyone who has expertise is as brilliant as they think they are. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Yeah, it's really annoying when people do that. But uh, Ezra, thinking that he's an expert, is now going to dive into some demographic data. Mm. Specifically, he's looking at demographic data involved in COVID-19 deaths out of New York. His argument is that if you look at the data, the virus is mostly killing those with comorbidities. And this leads Ezra to say that we can treat people differently based on these different risk profiles. Okay. In other words, individuals with diabetes should stay home while everyone else should just go to work because you'll be fine. All right. He also points out age differences. So since only one person under the age of 18 has died in New York, according to whatever he was looking at at the time, and he also says that this person died of a comorbidity, he therefore goes, let's just send all the kids to work. (laughs) Sorry? Yep. What does he mean by kids? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's an element of exploitation that exists here that is really friggin' creepy. Is he promoting child labor? Is that what he's trying to say? Well, I'm sure he would say, like, I meant 15 to 18-year-olds or some bullshit like that. One thing that Ezra refuses to acknowledge, though, is the hospitalization rate. Getting an exact number on this varies from regions, so just like the death rate, it's hard to sort of, like, come up with a number of what hospitalization rate is for a particular, like, age group. But it is true that young people 
even if they are not likely to die from this, are still being hospitalized, often at rates of like 10 per 100,000. Yeah. So in New York, you're still getting a lot of hospitalization of youth. And that number will rise if we send kids to work because now more kids are going to be exposed to this virus. And that means that there will be more kids in the hospital. And that means that hospitals might approach their limit and be overloaded. And that means more people, including kids, will eventually die if we just send them all to work. Yeah, yeah. And also in terms of core morbidities, old people with health, health problems still need to eat. They still need to come into contact with the world. So the more people are not socially distancing, the more the virus will get a hold in the community and the more likely that someone with a comorbidity is going to come into contact with someone who has it and the more likely those people will die if we let anyone and everyone just go back to work. Yeah. Why is the economy more important than people's lives? Mm, Because we treat the economy like it's a godlike figure. That reigns upon us that we must protect and pray to almost every day and worship and feed it. <laughs> Don't you feel like that? It, there is an element of of a spiritual quality to this. Because I, I never I haven't heard from anyone who advocates this position that we just should send people to work. Yeah, a few people will die, but like at least our economy will be saved. I haven't heard why this is a good idea. You gotta sacrifice the people. So the gods of the economy are satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I, I'm wondering, like, what is what is the outcome of the economy collapsing that they're so worried about? And so again, you have these like, sui- that the suicide thing. And it's like, I don't think that's like, I mean, there's a worry about that with social distancing generally. I don't think it has like explicitly to do with work. I think what the worry is, is that it will pressure governments to actually implement more social democratic policies and people will actually see that these things work and want them on a permanent basis because if you are living well off of for example $2000 and maybe you worked full time and didn't even make that money and now you're getting it and not working and you're realizing you can do so much more with your life your time people are going to start wanting it. And if they realize it's something that's nice and they realize something that's good, it kind of ruins this idea that the free market knows all, it controls all, it is just, it is right, right? And people will start opposing that. It's just like, and I mean, this is ahead of time now, right? Like we're, this is April 22nd, we're recording. But it's just like the fact that Trudeau is doing these targeted policies towards certain groups where certain groups deserve less because he wants to maintain that status quo, this idea that their worth is worthless in our society because they don't work or contribute as much to society as other groups do. That's why you've got these like mean testing targeted policies that aren't very good and actually help benefit the, the more advantaged in our society because it's maintaining a status quo. And I think that the more the economy breaks down, the less ability people are able to get jobs um, and make an income, it's going to force this government to actually adopt more of a socialist regime. I mean, Ezra never explicitly says what you're saying, obviously, but I do think that this is what's going on in the background because Ezra literally says, How about stop the total lockdown on the entire population and give all the care and protection to the sick and the elderly and let everyone else go back to work to pay for it all. And the one thing that's like rattling around in the background that he just doesn't address is why can't we just take the fucking money from rich people? 
Like, why do we have to send poor fucking kids to sacrifice themselves when we can just take Jeff Bezos's money? He's got a ton. Let's just fucking take it. Well, because it's the idea that he worked for it and deserves it. And if you're going to oppose that, you're opposing entire structure that's based on, on this idea that if you work really hard, you'll make tons of money. And if we don't work really hard and we don't motivate people with monetary benefits, then people are just going to be lazy losers who sit around on the couch and we're all just going to be self-quarantining for the rest of our lives on universal basic income and nothing will get done and the world will collapse. Like that's, that's where their minds are going to, but it's just, it's not true because it's even like now that people are getting an income, everything's even fine, maybe in their households and they're stuck at home. People want to go out. They want to go do things. People are trying to find creative ways to produce things and do things. Maybe it's not the most productive thing like being a doctor and saving lives right now, but some people are creating videos. Some people are learning how to do things. And I mean, why wouldn't you want that life for people? Because these people are evil fuckers. Like, I'm so angry about this. I know, I know, I know. It's the, I don't think it's evil. It's I think it's like you're raised with a certain ideology. I meant Ezra. Which is liberalism. I don't even think he's evil. I think he is just so heavily indoctrined into this, like, libertarian bullshit that this free market can control all. Adam Smith's bullshit invisible hand, right? Like, yeah. and everything is going to be great and grand that he goes to a fascistic tendency because he's willing to be fascist in order to defend it. Yeah, I have way more sympathy for the everyday person who just buys into the libertarian bullshit. But my the reason for calling Ezra evil is because he's a propagandist. And I, I think he's way more aware of his own bullshit and just ignores it because he wants grifter money. Yeah, maybe. I don't also think it's just for money. I genuinely think he believes some of the things he says. We need to reconstruct society's image of what work is in order to get anywhere like i think you're right that there is there's it's a cultural thing it's embedded in a lot of people that work has this like sacred element to it and like it determines people's worth in a society and we just really need to fix that in order to get past all this bullshit the fact that people are self-quarantined and you know they're getting money they're in the house and they want to go do stuff and they want to find creative ways to produce just goes to fucking show you that money doesn't fucking encourage you to do work. Yep. And that, that logic annoys me. People are greedy people. Yeah. People can be greedy. I agree with that. That's why you have assholes like Jeff Bezos in this world. But the problem is it's this idea that greed motivates you to work. Like at what point in my life did I feel motivated because of, making amples or surpluses and surpluses of money nothing to do with it it's all about the fact that i have to fucking survive and feed myself that i do work that i hate that i go into jobs that i don't want to take that i put myself in situations where i feel like my life is not as enjoyable as it could be yeah which is why like people want to work right now not because they like love their shitty dead-end jobs but because they're in this position where they need to eat yeah. Well, it's not even that. It's also like people who are fine at home and wanting to do things are doing it because they genuinely want to do things. People want to create. People like to make things. People like to produce. So why not give them just the financial stability so they can find out what that is in their actual day-to-day life? I agree. And then someone's going to hear that and be a fucking communist. Well, 
Like, oh my god, you're, you're good. What if someone just chooses to sit around all day and not contribute to society? And it's just, I guess that to me is like where we differ in moral positions on life then. Yeah. Yeah. Because to me, it's like, I would rather everyone be able to eat, have shelter, and like have general well-being taken care of. And then if they choose to do fuck all with their lives, let them do fuck all with their lives. I don't care. And for those who want to go out and do work in terms of I have a hobby and I want to do something, let them go out and work. Yeah. Now, for the interview segment, we get the pleasure of listening to Lord Gunter. (laughs) And he's on to tell us that the reason why we were not prepared for COVID-19 was because of political correctness. Mm. And the only example that Lorne references is this one case in the York Region School Board where they refused to quarantine students coming back from China. This was in mid-January because they felt singling out Chinese students in this way was racist. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that this parent-led petition to get the York uh, Regional School Board to quarantine these students also included an aspect in which they would have to surveil these students and follow where they go. And it's ironic that earlier in this episode, we were talking about Ezra complaining about the UK doing the exact same thing to their own citizens. But of course, then it was happening to white Western people and not Asian looking people. So is that surprising? No. Well, especially because next, Ezra and Gunter then downplay the extent that anti-Chinese racism is happening. And to the extent that people who are Chinese Canadians who've never been to China during the last year, uh, you know, were being uh, looked down on in the street. That's right. But there was no evidence of that. I remember that story. And no one could point to any example. All over the world, there has been an increase in reported hate crimes towards Asian people. Just in Canada, there have been several recorded incidents of people being spat on. Someone has also taken a sledgehammer to statues outside of a Buddhist temple. And there have been stabbings in Montreal, although those have not been directly linked to racism, but it has raised the concern that these were the result of a racist attack. But also, just a week or so before this, David Menzies mentioned on Ezra's show that Chinese businesses were being discriminated against due to COVID-19-related racism, which in fact is true, and then told the rebel audience to eat Chinese food. So, in the words of David Menzies, Are you kidding me? What is this? Are you guys kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) Gunter then says that the reason why Taiwan is doing so well is because they're not politically correct. <laughs> you know when there's just not words? <laughs> so fucking stupid. You know when there's just like a situation you're describing but you can't like respond to it because there's just... what? How do you respond to that? Like it's like, no, no. Well, the best part is throughout this whole interview, he basically like contradicts himself in the next statement because the, he then goes on to say that Taiwan is testing everyone that enters the country. Yeah. Which probably matters more than political correctness. <laughs> but we've already said on the show it's because Taiwan was really prepared because of the SARS outbreak and it hit them very hard last time. So they, they overprepared for this. No, exactly. So they had yeah. tests available on the ready to do that and they shut these things down. Like, yeah. And we were not equally prepared. 
Yep. It's also worth reminding that Taiwan is has half the population of Canada living on a tiny island. Yep. So the, the cases are not comparable. Ezra then brings up flights from China, and Gunter points out that America blocked flights from China before Canada did, and they are in far worse shape. Okay. But he also says they are in worse shape because they failed to enact social distancing measures. Now, I do wonder, though, considering Gunter's own theory that the spread in Canada is due to political correctness, mm-hmm. this also makes very little sense, given that he just indicated that no, I know. Uh, the U.S. has it worse when Trump is like their beacon of like unpolitical correctness. I know, I know. And the most frustrating thing is that Gunter keeps hitting on a semi-good point throughout, which is that if we want to move beyond this, we need more testing, which is true. And Gunter highlights Germany's handling of the pandemic as evidence that testing works. Okay. And again, fitting in with Gunter's narrative, Ezra compared (laughs) Angela Merkel to Hitler for merely stating that hate speech is harmful. (laughs) Second, and I'm sorry, I just couldn't help thinking of this myself. Look at the arm pounding. A bet. I mean, this is Adolf Hitler, and I'm obviously not comparing Merkel to Hitler. That's not fair. She's not a Nazi, obviously. I'm not saying that, but... Shouting and banging a podium, arms like this, like that. Watch her do that. I'm sorry. There was something in how she delivered these remarks that made me think of that. Maybe that's mean, but that's that's what my mind did. Someone pounding a podium, shouting in German, while saying that for the good of society, we have to restrict freedom. And here is Gunter saying this country with this woman who's like Hitler in terms of political correctness. Mm Mm-hmm is somehow doing a better job at controlling this. But but the Liberal Party's political correctness has just ruined Canada. They then end the interview with Ezra bringing up the fact that Trudeau sent masks to China. And Gunter actually says he doesn't fault Trudeau for that because it's in our nature as Canadians to just be kind and give things to people. But then he says he isn't keen on it, though, because China has two Canadians in prison. Okay. And doesn't, like, that seems ghastly to me. <laughs> just, like... We could help the Chinese people, but because the government arrested two Canadians, let them die. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, uh, yeah, that's how they end the segment. That's it. And I just have to say that Ezra and Gunter are fucking idiots. (laughs) Well, they're just not consistent, at least. No, they are not. No, not at all. I have with me Sam Hirsch, and he is an organizer with Rent Strike Ottawa. Hello, Sam. How's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. It's uh, It's been interesting times. Indeed it has. Indeed it has. <laughs> I mean, this isn't directly related to the content of the show in terms of something that uh, Ezra has brought up, but I imagine that Ezra would be pro-landlord in a lot of these disputes. <laughs> Uh, and so in that sense, we, we like to promote a lot of the uh, leftist organizing anyways to combat a lot of what happens on the right. So I would like to know, uh, so what's what's happening in Ottawa? Like how, like why have a rent strike, I guess, in the first place? Well, first of all, I can confirm that I have not heard from Ezra uh, to be involved with our, our movement, yeah. uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but um, yeah, I, I mean... You know, people are suffering all across, well, the world, I suppose. But, I mean, 
uh, particularly in, in Ontario, I think the rules around uh, housing and uh, are, are pretty lax compared to the rest of Canada. And that, you know, comes with decades of, of austerity. You know, Mike Harris, Mike, Mike Harris days, the Liberals not really doing it that much about it, you know. And now Ford, obviously, uh, raising the minimum rent increase um, and, you know, doing away with, like, rent control. So we were already facing a housing crisis before this, right? And that's I think that's the whole thing, too. Like, nothing was okay before this happened. And this virus has sort of laid bare all the inequalities that we everyone on the left was yelling about, <laughs> except it's much worse. So, you know, in that sense, there were the, there were folks like myself, for example, who, who were already uh, on the edge there in terms of not having support, uh, not uh, financially uh, or emotionally or whatever. And now this happened and those people lost their jobs, um, are living paycheck to paycheck just because we're living in an economic system that, that's already made to exploit us. You know, so now we're hurting even more because a lot of us don't. I mean, I was unemployed before this started. So, uh, you know, and I, I can't I'm not eligible for the uh, the CERB or EI. Um, and there's a lot of people in my situation, uh, almost 900,000 people are in that situation. So there's lots of people who, you know, are decided to keep their rent like myself because it's quite simply they, you know, they, they need they need to pay for food and, and medication. And obviously housing shouldn't be a commodity because housing is one of those essential uh, needs that shouldn't be treated as a as a as a luxury so that's basically the gist of the of the uh of, of why you know why the why of this movement you know and development is pretty bad here developers uh all across the province especially in ottawa um you know are pretty bad as well so uh, in terms of uh how bad they are, how greedy and stuff they are so yeah i've been trying to utilize this moment to try to get home to people that housing is a human right, much like healthcare or public education is. It seems weird that we have in this one instance, uh, a commodity where it's a need to have shelter. Mm -hmm. But see, it's weird, like talking to some liberals who seem to think that, you know, healthcare is perfectly fine for it to not be a commodity. But in the case of housing, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a good point. And I think a lot of people online or whatever who are commenting, are like you know it, it's a business landlords have to make money too i was like well that's the issue yeah you know it's not a business uh, it shouldn't be a business uh, people need housing to to live you know it's it's it shouldn't it shouldn't be treated that way and and that's obviously a huge issue and you know now we're seeing in terms of what's going on with uh, in ottawa to answer the second part of your question i think there's some momentum here uh you know there's a lot of momentum in toronto and that's where a lot of the news has been but we've also been on some local news on ctv uh on the radio uh we had a, an op-ed in the citizen for example the ottawa citizen the local newspaper by post media so i was very surprised that they actually let us publish it anyways <laughs> because it was quite a i guess left populist sort of sort of piece but you know um i think there's momentum here our posters are going up around the city i think that's that's having an impact. Folks are calling in our, our line. There might be a big, bigger ramp up come May 1st, I think, because I think before we start, we sort of started like two weeks before and we didn't really have that much time to organize. Um, so I think there's a structure that's there now. And, and, and now we can actually go around and, and organize people because we've already gotten some calls of people who are like, you know, I'm not I didn't keep my rent in April. But, you know, I'm first of all, either either I'm down to keep it on May 1st or I'm not going to be able to afford it on May 1st. I could afford in April and not in May. So I, I'm I'm going to you know, join the movement. So, you know, it's been, it, it's been a lot. It's been overwhelming to hearing stories from people who, whose, whose landlords are having open houses, uh, you know, while they're still living there to evict them, while the pandemic's going on. So they're going to expose them to some of those folks are immunocompromised. 
you know, and just trying to deliver N4 is trying to evict tenants uh, who have little knowledge about about the LTB. And that's I think that that's the biggest issue. We need to inform people of their rights so that they don't, you know, get kicked out. You were just talking about organizing there. And so I'm curious if you have any tips for people who still want to organize uh, come May 1st. I know in London, a group has started. They missed the April 1st deadline. I don't think they had enough momentum going before that, but they plan on uh, striking May 1st. And so I'm curious, do you have any tips so far and how the organizing has been going in Ottawa? Yeah, you know, and I, I think that the other thing to keep in mind too is, you know, even though they started late, you know, there could even be people that they don't even know about who are keeping the rent as well. So, you know, and, and uh, those people are ripe to get organized. I think that the first thing, you know, and something that uh, we've been, you know, speaking with folks in Toronto at Parkdale, uh, who have a lot of uh, the Parkdale Legal Clinic, who have a lot of experience, and folks who have experience here in Ottawa during, you know, Herongate, what all the stuff that happened around that, where um, it was one of the biggest evictions in the in Canadian history. If folks don't don't know about that, uh, you could look it up online. Yeah. It, it was a pretty it was a pretty um, horrendous uh, event. Basically, a bunch of you know. Uh, newcomers and, and immigrants just getting kicked out of their building uh, to build new ones. And then they were sort of priced out of coming into the new ones that were built up. So it was pretty, it was a pretty terrible affair, but you know, so we have folks around that who have experienced rent strikes before because of Timber Creek, not doing repairs. So we have some experience there too. And you know, the thing that they talk about and, and we do too, is, is the most important thing is to not deal with landlords individually and to deal with them collectively because if they deal with it on a case-by-case basis, you don't really have that much leverage there. But if you have more folks in solidarity with you responding collectively, ideally half or most of your building um, or whatever neighborhood, wherever you kind of building you're living in, then the, you have a lot of leverage over over landlord. Because I think that's the important part of this coronavirus or whatever you want to call COVID-19 pandemic. You know, not only tenants, but workers too. I mean, we saw at the GE plant in the US when they walked out to or forced threatened to walk out to build ventilators. I think people are starting to see the collective power that they actually have, and that the power dynamic between landlord and tenant, or or between bosses and workers, are really one that's you know not sort of superficially exists, and and that if they band together, then they can actually accomplish something. And I think that's very powerful, and I think it's something we always talk about. But since there's this huge pandemic, I mean, I know just anecdotally, some uh, friend who was working in a cafe who did. Him, they didn't want to go in for work, and then they got all the workers together, and then the, the bosses couldn't do anything about it, so they so they didn't work. Um, you know, so it's it's very. I mean, amidst all this sort of mayhem, it's 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 nice to hear that that sort of thing happening. So that's why it's important too in this organizing to do things collectively because you have more leverage than if you go on a case by case basis. Do you know if there's a difference between say people who live in an apartment building where there's many more tenants versus like. Uh, about like a property management group as opposed to like an individual who lives in a household who has a landlord who might own like one or two, uh, I guess, uh, investment properties. Is there any difference you're finding between those two? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good thing to bring up because I mean, the tactic for that is obviously different in organizing like you, like you're alluding to when it's a big property management company, it's, it's sort of easier to, I mean, there's more people to get on board, but it's easier to, to do it. I think because that, property management company is sort of faceless and nameless and they're just this big evil corporation in a lot of cases like timber creek like uh, minto here in ottawa and you know and and and, and it, if you rally if you rally together in solidarity you could be like you know 30 to 40 to 50 and up people 
um, to do it. So it's, it's, it's easier in that way. If you're with a small time landlord, which is my situation too, I live with this, uh, we live in a house and it, it's harder to, um, just anecdotally too, it's, it's harder to get uh, people together because you might have a relationship with your landlord. Um, you might be like, Oh, my landlord's really nice. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, you might know them personally or whatnot. So, you know, it's harder. You, you, you gotta, you know, there's less people, right? So you have less leverage basically. That's, that's the thing. Uh, and that's why it's more difficult, but you know, if still, if you act together, if you, if you, if there's four units in your building and you get all four of them to not pay or, or partially pay or whatever you feel comfortable with, ideally not paying at all, you know, that's, that could still be powerful. And there's not, there's use in trying, you know, uh, people are like, Oh, well, we're only this many people, you know, there's still use in trying, and getting everyone to do it. But the important thing to keep in mind too, is that there is a loophole um, for some people, people who live with their landlords and the landlord has partial like ownership of the, of the house, there's a loophole there. And if, if the landlord, you know, moves or evicts you or whatever, like it, you know, they can do that because they own, they own part of it. If I'm not, I might be mistaken, but I know that at least in Toronto, that happened to somebody who was an, an activist uh, uh, in Toronto and didn't pay the rent and they got evicted. So there's some sort of loophole there. So folks who are in that situation maybe should think about that before they do it. But but yeah, for sure, um, you know, it's more difficult to organize in an in environment where you have less, less people and less leverage, but it's still workable and it's still happening. You know, people in our in our town, in our city are, have done that and, 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 and are, you know, are getting pushed back, obviously, but, you know, they're still going through with it. Yeah, I noticed like some people who have been in the individual residence dealing with uh, a little more. Is there any, how is the outreach going from the people who are, uh, have that more collective power in the buildings, like reaching out to those in the singular houses? Like, has that been happening? It's hard to say sort of because our, our organizing has, a lot of it has been obviously, you know, it's the, and the other thing to say, obviously it's really difficult to organize in this environment. Right? Yeah. It's a you go outside, you can't knock on doors you know, we're trying to be as safe as we can, obviously, because there's folks who are involved with us who are immunocompromised. We don't want those people to go outside. We are making phone calls. We have some, you know, some contacts and stuff that we're calling, you know, but as far as, I mean, I don't know specifically, to be honest. I know there are some buildings who reached out to us in the downtown area, Centertown West, which is a more lower, lower income area of downtown, are, are, are organizing a lot of their building. And that's good to hear. And, and I think the thing that's important for people who are like, you know, ramping up, like in London, as you said, is that, you know, it's almost if someone calls you and says they're organizing their building, that's almost better because we want we you want it to be self-sustaining and people to doing doing it themselves. You don't want to control it centrally from a Facebook group, which is sort of the situation that we're in now, where we're trying to branch out. Like I know in Toronto, right, you're seeing stories uh, where they've organized whole buildings and you know, it's been on the news and, and it's very, you know, it's, it's gaining a lot of, a lot of headway. So it's nice to see. So for us, you know, we're sort of trying to get there. We started a little bit later than them and we have a little bit less capacity and a little bit less experience, I suppose, or, or history of sort of tenant organizing. There does, there's Acorn, but they're less focused on a rent strike per se. And they still are in favor of a rent freeze and a rent break as they call it. But, you know, and they've been helpful as well, but uh, yeah, I know. So, I mean, I, I think it's going well. It's just, it's sort of difficult to tell though, as I said, because we, you know, we're not actually on the ground per se. We're, you know, we're getting people to call people. And if you know anyone in your building and this and that. So, so yeah, that's sort of where we're at. So April 1st has passed. And that means that some people have withheld uh, the rent. Is there anything that you've learned from that experience of, uh, I guess, how landlords have been reacting to this? 
Yeah. So, you know, so there are some landlords who, who have been sort of, I suppose, forgiving. I don't know that there's, there's some stories of that, I think, but the majority of stories that I'm hearing obviously are landlords who are not happy, especially the big companies. I think there are some big companies who are like, oh, we're waiving our increases. We're like, yeah, it was really that $25 that was really going to break the bank on me, you know, like, (laughs) so, you know, but they're, you know, I think, I think they're scared, you know, because they are, they're not obviously like backing down completely. They're still, you know, trying to get, get rent out of people, but they're trying, they're still making those little incremental uh, chain, like those incremental, like, uh, like things like, Oh, we're, in, we're, we won't do the rent increase. Oh, we'll do this and that. So they're obviously having, there's obviously some sort of impact on them, you know? And, and, and then the, when it comes to the smaller tenants, a lot of them are, you know, are taking advantage of their, of their tenants. They're, you know, uh, I got a call, uh, someone was trying to evict someone, even though, you know, they're not, allowed, no one can evict anyone because the LTB is the landlord tenant board isn't operating. Uh, someone tried, but, you know, as uh, as I, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this already, but it's having <clears throat> an open house with somebody during a pandemic. And this I've heard of this multiple times, um, too. And that's so dangerous to, to everyone who's there, the people living in the house, obviously, the people coming into the house, the landlord themselves. So some of them are going to great lengths to, you know, get rid of, of the tenants who are there, I think. But, you know, a lot of them don't have that much leg to stand on because, you know, the, the LTB isn't, sit, as I said, isn't sitting. And... And um, even if they try to get an, uh, an eviction order from the LTB, it's it's uh, it would take months, months. I read an article that said it would take 10 months if you do it right now, you know, but that doesn't mean landlords like they often do will act illegally. You know, that 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 probably will happen. I mean, it is happening here in Ottawa. We've already gotten calls about that, you know, several calls. And they're also taking advantage of, of folks who are um, uh, more vulnerable, like uh, newcomers or, or refugees gotten calls about that as well and messages from other folks and uh you know they're just that's the thing as i said before if you we need to know our rights and also we need to act collectively act in solidarity because if landlords go on a case-by-case basis then then they'll be successful but if if we act together then then we can get through it where do we go from here what's (laughs) what's what's the horizon look like what are you what are you hoping in the short term come may 1st that there's an even bigger showing uh for a rent strike um, I think that obviously a big media spin will be like, oh, well, people have got their benefits. Why are they striking? The other thing on that, on that point, I mean, I, I don't think people will have gotten their benefits or, or I, I'm very skeptical. You know, there's going to be millions of people. I heard the number 4 million people will, that will apply for the Canadian emergency response benefit. Uh, and that's going to take 10 days to get to them. I don't think so. We're seeing what's happening with Phoenix, right? Uh, I don't, you know, I don't believe that that's going to happen anyways. You know, so I hope that happens in the, sh- in the short term, in the medium to long term. Uh, I hope, and as I, you know, as we both mentioned before, in the beginning, that um, you know that this this sort of uh, pandemic has showed how, how housing is how everyone's so vulnerable. How you know how there's uh, housing isn't isn't uh, stable. How their job isn't stable. How their financial stability isn't stable, for lack of a better word. Um, and we're seeing you know uh, a huge expansion of albeit, you know, hopefully not brief, but albeit brief, a huge expansion of the welfare state, the likes we haven't seen, you know, since post-World War II. And then I hope that continues because, you know, people are like, people who are on EI are getting less than people who are getting the, the CERB. And they're like, okay, this is what you're telling me. This is the bare minimum to live, but I'm getting, making less of that on, 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 on EI. So, you know, and I hope people see, well, housing is a right, you know, and, and, and things like, you know, there's a lot of stuff 
that the left has been trying to do for a long time. But this, I mean, I'm not, obviously the virus is, is a terrible thing and I wish it wasn't happening, but it has sort of moved the agenda forward in the sense where people are, uh, vulnerable people are at risk and people are saying like, wow, I guess, you know, uh, basic income or, or whatever are things that, that we might be able to get behind because it's obviously people need, people need it. And, and, the, and the issues are systemic. They're not, you know, they're not their fault or whatnot. So I, I hope moving forward in the long term, obviously, you know, we can, we can have a better, better policy when it comes to housing and, and also, you know, have more, when it comes to the city of Ottawa and I guess places across Ontario that we have more stable, uh, you know, tenant unions and tenant associations and the tenants have that sort of strong bond and workers as well. And as I was mentioning before, have that bond and that solidarity through this crisis because people, you know, come together in, in a crisis and, and that, you know, that, that structure continues to exist and that, and that we continue to educate tenants and, and residents across the city, you know, at, at how, uh, how they could act if, 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 um, you know, if they come together and obviously, you know, the total of abolition of, of landlord, the landlord class, but I'm just, <laughs> that, uh, that might be a longer, longer term goal, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, no, so I, I, I'm sort of, positive about pushing the agenda forward and what's to come but i mean obviously it's a hard time and 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 you know i i hope that this ends relatively soon but uh but it doesn't look like it so this is going to be a common theme on our show which is that this whole crisis is showing the need for a way better social welfare state and mm -hmm. a socialist policy to to protect everyone it, like it's just exposing all the flaws in society and exacerbating them right now. Yeah. So we're hopeful going forward that that uh, we can build the solidarity and we can ensure things like housing in the future and stuff like that. So for sure, we wish you the best of luck in your endeavors. But also, I will I will link the op ed that you wrote for the Ottawa Citizen. We'll also uh, link any of the the Facebook groups and stuff. But if you want to plug those now uh, as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, you can go on. Uh, we have our Facebook page, uh, COVID wrench, COVID nineteen wrench strike Ottawa, um, on Facebook. Uh, on Twitter, I think our handle is at COVID rent strike, if I'm not mistaken, or at COVID. I think it's at COVID. I think it's at COVID rent. Actually, we have our Facebook group, which is COVID nineteen wrench strike Ottawa, but the group, you know, group and the page have the same name. But yeah, if you live in Ottawa, you know, please please join it and, and join our movement. As I said, together, we're much stronger than you would be alone. And, you know, folks from across the province, if they want to, can join it as well. Uh, if they need tips and, and things like that. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. And I really appreciate it. And I hope that, you know, we start seeing other other Renshrek movements pop up around the country. Thanks so much, Sam. D did you want to uh, plug your own personal Twitter too? You might as well if you're on here. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm my Twitter. Uh, I'm so modest, you know, I can do it. But yeah. <laughs> my, my Twitter handle is at uh, Sam Hirsch uh, 01. Very uh, creative name. Um, but yeah, give me give me a follow. That'd be that'd be real nice. Maybe I'll follow you back. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on. And we'll post if anyone else wants uh uh, for future episodes, wants to post any local Facebook groups that they create as well for their own uh, city's rent strikes, uh, go ahead and do so. I'll post the links also to London's and Toronto's. But uh, yeah, hopefully we can uh, we can cause some just disruption and get some change mm -hmm. going. So thanks a lot. Solidarity.
enjoy what you've heard so far, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we are doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News with a Z. You have an Instagram account. You have? We have. <laughs> news Imperial. We have a private Facebook group called Imperial News. We also have a Discord set up. You can find the link on our Twitter. Lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at striatom.bandcamp.com. And special thanks again to Sam for coming on the show. Thank you for listening. And remember, don't sacrifice yourself for the rich. Sacrifice the rich instead. Eat the rich. Albumia, Albumia, how lovely are your wheat fields.